everyone, Shirley here. Welcome to today's topic entitled, How to Ethically and Legally Shape Upcoming Federal Procurements. There are common misunderstandings among government contractors and personnel in government contracting and program offices about the communications that the FAR not only allows, but encourages. Consequently, valuable one-on-one communication between government decision makers and influencers and the vendor community is artificially squelched. And when that happens, everybody loses. The government, innovative contractors, and the American people. There are fewer new vendors in the federal sector, less innovation, less competition, and higher prices. To help explore this important topic, I reached out to Stephen Ramele, a partner in the Government Contracts Practice Group in the Washington, D.C. office of the law firm of Miles and Stockbridge. Welcome, Steve. Thanks, Shirley. So great to be here. Well, it's great to have you. Steve, please tell our audience a little about your background and Miles and Stockbridge. Sure. Miles is a full-service law firm, and we've got a large presence in the Mid-Atlantic. We've got about 250 lawyers, give or take, which means we are large enough to handle just about any matter related to business activity, but we aren't so large that our overhead structure requires us to charge clients an arm and a leg. Within the firm, I'm a partner in our firm's government contracts group. As a mid-Atlantic firm, government contracts is naturally a leading practice within the firm. We've got about 20 lawyers, again, give or take, doing everything from bid protests to GovCon M&A to white-collar defense. And as a partner in the group, I'm knowledgeable in all of those areas, but my most unique skill set is that I am a, a relatively fluent in the SBA's small business and socioeconomic program rules. And so I'm the co-chair of the ABA's small business committee, um, which is part of the public contracts law section, and I've testified to the U.S. Congress on small business contracting policy. So the, the irony of the SBA rules, I always say, is that they are some of the more complicated rules in all of government contracting, and they are applied to the firms who can least afford white-shoe lawyers to walk them through the maze. So my practice is built on leveraging my in-depth experience to deliver advice in an economically efficient way, which I'm happy to attempt to do here today on this program, but be forewarned. Nothing I say here should be construed as legal advice. I'm just providing you guys some general information to help educate on the law. That's a good clarification, Steve. So let's begin our discussion with clarification on what the FAR allows and encourages related to pre-solicitation communications. So like any lawyer, I'm going to start in the text of the FAR. The two most relevant sections are FAR Part 10 and FAR Part 15. And FAR Part 10 is really where we should start. It discusses the obligations that contracting officers must fulfill in the pre-solicitation context. So what we're talking about here is market research for the most part. Agencies have a duty to conduct market research in a variety of situations before developing new requirements documents, before soliciting offers for acquisitions above the simplified acquisition threshold or even sometimes under the threshold. And then also before IDIQ contracts are awarded for non-commercial products and services, uh, among other uh, contexts for, for conducting market research. Notably, the FAR warns that when conducting market research, agencies should not request potential sources to submit more than the minimum information necessary. 
But candidly, the other sections of the SPAR part tend to run in the opposite direction, encouraging the submission of any and all information that could help the agency make a decision. Steve, I have served on proposal review boards on behalf of federal agencies. One thing I learned is that reviewers not only look at the proposal that you as the contractor have submitted, but they are allowed to take into consideration any other public information about the bidders to determine their fit and readiness to take on the work under consideration. This means that agencies can look at your website and any materials that you have shared with the government prior to the solicitation, such as capability statements, capability briefings, case studies, and references. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, And I have unfortunately been part of too many bid protests to count where the basis for the protest or the basis for the evaluation was some public or even non-public information related to a company or its past performance uh, that had just been posted online or was otherwise available to the contracting officer. And LinkedIn pages are my favorite. I, I cannot tell you how many times I've seen a company put something that could potentially cause them to be ineligible for award of a federal contract on LinkedIn. Um, a big source of information for the government is also um, – Uh, the core or related federal staff. A contracting officer can speak to virtually anyone in the government to understand a contractor's capabilities and past performance. So everyone you interact with at the government site can be the reason you get an award or not. Uh, So I guess the the lesson is be on your best behavior. Well, that's always good advice. (laughs) So what are the agencies looking for during the market research phase? Sure. So let's drill in a little bit on, on these sort of subparts within Part 10. So you're looking really at whether the government needs can be met by commercial items or not, right? Um, government's looking at customary practices regarding customizing, modifying, or tailoring products or services to meet their needs, looking at customary terms and conditions, including warranties, buyer financing, discounts, contract type, considering the nature and risk associated with the requirement. Um, also, general legal requirements unique to the item or service being acquired. And then here is a big one, whether the government's needs can be met by small business concerns that will likely submit a competitive offer at fair market prices. We're going to come back to that, I think. And, and other things, of course. Uh, so, Steve, you mentioned commercial items. What is the government's definition of commercial items, and why is that significant to small contractors? I'm glad you asked that question. This is probably a question that could be a program unto itself. Uh, The bottom line is that a commercial item is one that is offered in substantial quantities to the commercial marketplace along the same or similar terms. Now, minor modifications to the product won't convert it into a non-commercial item, but major major modifications will. And and the best example here is maybe a, a tank is not a commercial item, but a laptop is, right? Then again, if the laptop has Kevlar on it and could function in the vacuum of space, well, that's probably a serious modification that makes it a non-commercial laptop, unless for some reason there's a cognizable commercial marketplace for that kind of laptop, which, hey, in the world of SpaceX and Blue Origin, maybe there is or will be, right? So it's all contextual. And the commercial designation is important to contractors, and particularly small contractors, because, among other reasons, 
commercial items are generally purchased by the government using commercial terms, or at least terms that are more commercial in nature than when compared to non-commercial item acquisitions. So from an IP and compliance perspective, commercial terms are typically more advantageous to or less onerous on contractors, and thus why I think many small business contractors at least start and prefer to sell commercial items. And you're right, Steve, we should probably do a whole episode on commercial items. But <laughs> yeah. let's, let's go back to the market research phase. What are the mechanisms and practices the government uses? To get this info, the government can cast a wide net, which includes consulting experts in government or industry regarding whether the market can even meet the requirement, reviewing the results of recent market research undertaken to meet similar or identical requirements, publishing formal requests for information, RFIs, as most folks know them by, looking for available vehicles they could use for the requirements, and speaking with industry acquisition personnel and customers, a big one. There is a myth out there that contracting and program personnel are not allowed to have one-on-one conversations with potential bidders prior to the release of the RFP. We, of course, know that's not true. Not only are one-on-one pre-solicitation communications allowed, but they are encouraged, as explained in a series of four myth-busting memos distributed by the OMB, Office of Management and Budget, to contracting officers government-wide. Where can these memos be found? Yep, they're widely available on the Internet. You could Google them, but they're also posted on the Miles website as well as the Scale to Market website. Yes, they are. They're on our, our website as well. Uh, so, Steve, let's get back to the mechanisms agencies use to conduct market research. Sure. So, not only can you speak with industry acquisition personnel and customers, but the, the KO will also obtain source lists of similar items from other contracting activities, um, or even agencies, trade associations, and other sources from outside their own um, uh, acquisition shop. They'll also review catalogs and generally available product literature published by manufacturers, distributors, dealers, anything available online. And then here's the the big one that we were just sort of referring to. They will conduct interchange meetings or can conduct, I should say, interchange meetings or holding pre-solicitation conferences to involve potential offerors or early in the acquisition process. And then lastly, they can review systems such as the System for Award Management, the Federal Procurement Data System, and SBA's Dynamic Small Business Search, often referred to as DSBS. So keep in mind that all of these areas are up for grabs when it comes to speak with buyers. And so the government has a lot of authority to engage with the private marketplace prior to issuing a solicitation. Steve, I want us to explore in more depth And this is a quote, holding pre-solicitation conferences with industry. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think a lot of folks um, that have been around the procurement block for a while have either been invited to or probably attended these conferences. And it it comes from FAR Part 15.201, which expresses a preference for holding these kinds of conferences. And this section is even titled, Exchanges with Industry Before Receipt of Proposals, right? So there's subsection C, which I kind of want to read in its entirety. It says, agencies are encouraged to promote early exchanges of information about future acquisitions. 
an early exchange of information among industry and the program manager, contracting officer, and other participants in the acquisition process can identify and resolve concerns regarding the acquisition strategy, including proposed contract types, terms and conditions, and acquisition planning schedules. The feasibility of the requirement, including the performance requirements, statement of work, and data requirements, the suitability of the proposal instructions and evaluation criteria, including the approach for assessing past performance information, and the availability of reference documents and any other industry concerns or questions. So among other means by which agencies conduct such exchanges are these, you know, sub-C4, now subsection within this FAR 15.201, quote, one-on-one meetings with potential offerors, and then parentheses, any that are substantially involved with potential contract terms and conditions should include the contracting officer. So not only is there a preference for these exchanges, but then there's also some additional caveats about how they must go down, so to speak. Yes, excellent. Well, thank you for emphasizing that. Most contractors are particularly interested in reviewing the statement of work prior to the solicitation coming out. Under what circumstances can the statement of work be shared with a vendor? Well, SALs, as we call them, statements of work, are generally public documents, right? And so you could easily obtain a SAL from a predecessor contract through FOIA, for example, Um, Now, the prices and other proprietary data from that prior contract will be redacted when you receive it, but the government's needs and the way they've worded those needs via the SAO, that's not proprietary to anyone, and so you'll get that. Um, However, if it's a new requirement, the government has the discretion to release a draft SAO or otherwise share its intended SAO with the industry at large, but this is not a requirement. And it is notoriously difficult to obtain draft documents from the government under FOIA, as there is a FOIA exemption that protects anything that might divulge the government's policymaking process. Um, Often, however, the government will, like I said, release a SAL on an industry day or something similar in order to obtain feedback on it, but not advantage one company over the other by releasing it piecemeal to certain folks. They generally won't do that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's an important clarification. Let's say that you are persistent and have finally gotten an appointment with a contracting officer to discuss a specific upcoming solicitation. What are appropriate subjects for one-on-one discussions between federal contractors and potential federal customers? Well, there really aren't any limits in terms of what information you can give the government about your important caveat. So this would include your capabilities, your pricing, your socioeconomic status, your feedback on their statement of work. However, I would caveat here, stop short of actually writing any part of the statement of work, because that can give rise to an organizational conflict of interest. Again, a subject for perhaps another program. But also you could advise the government on which vehicle you think makes the most sense, right? They're, They're not required to take this advice, but you are more than welcome to provide it. So you want to give the government an idea of what you do well, what makes your products and services better than the competition. Isn't there a risk that you spill the beans and the government shares that information with your competitors? 
so keep in mind that the government has to create an open playing field and cannot favor any one vendor over another. So if you give the government a great idea for how to complete the work, they might use that in the solicitation, right? However, again, going back to FAR 15201, subsection F this time, and there are myriad other laws that do the same thing, or this is a regulation, but there are laws and regulations that do the same thing. The government cannot disclose something that would reveal a potential offeror's confidential business strategy. So if that's the case, how do you ensure that your confidential information is in fact being kept confidential by the government? So what is merely a good idea versus confidential business strategy, again, could be a seminar of its own. But the basic advice is, if you're talking about the recipe for your secret sauce, make sure you tell the government that it is confidential and don't provide written materials that aren't marked business proprietary and confidential. So what should you not discuss in one-on-ones? I always tell my clients, just do what your mother taught you. Don't talk about other folks behind their back. And there are legal reasons for this, not just moral reasons. But the idea is you need to stay away from competitor capabilities, their pricing, their experiences. If you get it wrong, and even if you don't get it wrong, sometimes this can, this can lead to actions related to defamation, slander, those sorts of legal concerns. Um, also, I would add, you know, talking about a competitor's pricing, you shouldn't have access to that pricing. So whether you're um, guessing or have some basis to make the allegation, that will raise red flags in the government when you're talking about a competitor's price, right? Another thing you got, you got to stay away from is government price estimate. The government cannot tell you anything about this anyway, so asking about it is pointless. And if the KO, or we, we use KO for contracting officer because CO in the military sometimes means commissioned officer, but if the KO does tell you something about government price estimates, congrats, you've just OCI'd yourself out of the competition. <laughs> so asking about it is a terrible idea. Yeah. And you can't actually ask for a contract. You can't say, if I make these changes to my product, would you buy it? And this is a shock to people who previously sold in the commercial sector who are taught ABC, always be closing. Yeah. Well, I'd say it's not necessarily illegal to ask for a contract, but again, the government can't answer in the affirmative. And if they did, even if they did, you wouldn't have a contract until the contracting officer signs on the dotted line, right? So even asking that question will probably just out you as someone who does not understand the way government contracting works, and it would probably thus diminish your chances of actually winning work. So again, it's a bad idea to ask that question. Many contractors don't understand that contracting officials not only can't share information about competitors, but they can't provide unequal access to information. Let's explore that a little bit. Well, and the additional problem is that not every CO perfectly appreciates what can and cannot be shared. So it's a contractor's responsibility to keep that conversation on the straight and narrow. Now, in industry, there are data aggregators who profess, some of them, that they have an inside track to contracting officers and can provide information that is not public for which you pay extra. 
And frankly, that drives me crazy. When I hear them, I tell them that they're breaking the law and should be reported to the inspector general. Well, I can't speak for every one of these um, data aggregator service providers, but the ones that I deal with and the ones I know of generally aren't, they're not breaking the law. They are merely aggregating data that is otherwise publicly available and presenting it in a more digested or digestible way all in one place. And you pay the data aggregators for them to crawl through FPDS or SAM.gov so that you don't have to pay an internal resource to do the same thing. And oftentimes they've been doing this for 30 years, so they're just inherently better at it. Now, ideally, the government would do a better job of posting its own public information and then organizing it so folks don't need to pay data aggregators, but government doesn't do that. So the aggregators do perform a valuable service, in my opinion. But you're right. They're, they're aggregating public information. It's stuff that theoretically all contractors could obtain. And government personnel are not allowed to selectively share beneficial competitive information, so they just sort of shotgun blast it out to the public and let the public sort it through. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, Steve, we need to take a break. I'm talking to Steve Romaley, a government contracts lawyer with Miles and Stockbridge, about how to ethically and legally shape upcoming procurements. When we come back, we'll talk about organizational conflicts of interest. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This Growthmasters Federal presentation is hosted by Shirley Collier, president and founder of Scale to Market. Scale to Market helps businesses think, plan, collaborate, and build market value by developing and executing customized data-driven business development playbooks, building efficient information systems, and creating high-performing BD teams. Utilizing the proprietary Davy Business Development Growth Framework, Scale to Market partners with business owners and executives to increase their company's value by achieving profitable and sustainable growth in the federal marketplace. Email Shirley at scollier at scaletomarket.com to learn more about the Davy Growth Framework and how it can be instrumental in helping grow your federal contracting business. Back now to Shirley's conversation with Steve Romilly, a government contract lawyer with Miles and Stockbridge, as they discuss having ethical and legal conversations with government personnel prior to the release of a procurement solicitation. Welcome back. Before the break, we were talking about unequal access to beneficial information. That's a good segue to talk about organizational conflicts of interest. There are common misunderstandings of what constitutes OCI. Yeah, I think too many times folks try to impose their own understanding of what a conflict looks like. And the reality is the FAR is very specific about this. And while the FAR does make clear that types of OCIs can arise, other than those described specifically in the FAR, in my experience, GAO and federal agencies tend to stick to those FAR definitions in terms of bucketing, so to speak, the various types of OCIs. So the rules are in 9505-1 through FAR 9505-4. And the underlying principles are the government wants to prevent the existence of conflicting roles that might bias a contractor's judgment, right? That's the important first one. And then 
secondarily, but equally important, they want to prevent unfair competitive advantage. But that's it. Those are the two things that can cause an OCI. And Steve, I understand that even the appearance of a, of a COI is undesirable. So this, I love this rationale. I think it makes perfect sense. Good government means that we not only avoid conflicts of interest for real, but we must also avoid the appearance of them, right? The government cannot function if the public doesn't have confidence that it's functioning without conflicts of interest. So the government treats the appearance of an OCI, even if one does not in fact exist, just as if it's just as appropriate as there being an actual OCI. Now, explain what is meant by unfair advantage. Sure. So unfair competitive advantage exists when a contractor competing for an award possesses proprietary information that was obtained from a government official without proper authorization, right, or source selection information and that's defined in FAR 2.101. We'll recite that definition here, but you could look it up. So source selection information that is relevant to the contract but is not available to all competitors where such information would assist that contractor in obtaining the contract. Can you give us an example? Oh, there's so many. But um, maybe, maybe a good one is if a contractor hired a pricing consultant who recently worked for a competitor on a different competition, but where the pricing for that competition is potentially relevant to the competition for which the contractor hired the pricing consultant now, right? And this is problematic because if that consultant used his or her knowledge of the other's price in formulating your price, then you would have an advantage over that competitor, right? And so the way you would deal with this is you need to screen folks who are working for you. You need to understand if they work for competitors. And then in certain instances, you can impose, uh, we call them firewalls, between certain functions and components of your own organization. But in this case, that probably wouldn't work. You would just need to make sure that that pricing consultant did not use or did not have access to competitor pricing information. That's, that's a good clarification. How else might a vendor get an unfair competitive advantage that is prohibited by the FAR? Yeah, so we're going to segue into the, the other type of OCI, right, which is preventing the existence of conflicting roles that might bias the contractor's judgment. And so a good example of that is what we call an impaired objectivity OCI. So this is where the contractor is, for example, bidding on a contract where it will be required to evaluate or otherwise pass judgment on the work of others. And what if that work was performed by the contractor's parent company? Clearly, that would cause the government to question whether a positive evaluation was given honestly. Right? And even if it was, the fact that there could appear to be an OCI is a problem, as stated earlier. Steve, let's talk about shaping. I encourage my clients not to wait for an RFI to be released or other market research activities to begin. If a contract is expiring in, say, 6 to 18 months, or you see a new requirement on a procurement forecast, reach out to the contracting office and the program office. Is this allowed by the FAR? 
Absolutely. Uh, a friendly conversation to let a contracting officer know that you exist and you are interested in working for them or even in a specific piece of work that's being recompeted, totally inbounds, encouraged, actually. I also advise my clients to reach out to the contracting office after an RFI is due, but before the RFP has dropped. The procurement is still in the market research phase. So let's say that you as a small business responded to an RFI source assault notification, but when the RFP dropped, it comes out as full and open. What recourse do you have at this point? Yeah, in 95% of those situations, there's nothing you can do at that point. Sad. However, this is where you should talk to legal counsel. In certain circumstances, like at the VA for service-disabled, better-known small businesses, or where you don't think the agency conducted any meaningful market research, you could file a pre-award bid protest asking the agency to set aside the requirement for small business. However, you've got to be aware that the vast majority of set-aside decisions are discretionary. You, you usually can't require the agency to set it aside. You can usually only require the agency to conduct better market research to support a decision of whether or not to set the requirement aside, which, which doesn't always have the, um, the most um, beneficial outcome uh, for small business contractors. So, so protesting isn't particularly efficacious in most instances. Hence why I said in, in 95% of the situations, there's nothing you can do. With that said, I have seen many folks file pre-award protests challenging decision not to set aside a requirement based on inadequate market research. And, and the protest can win um, because the government didn't conduct enough research. So, um, but, but in that instance, you know, guess what happens? The government goes back, conducts the research, finds it's not in the government's interest to set the requirement aside, and then still procures full and open, Right. And so, so this is why pre-RFP marketing and a sales pitch will be more successful than any sort of coercive means like a protest. And again, that sort of subject could be its own program probably, surely. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's really good advice. What, what is the most common pitfall contractors fall into when proposing on federal procurements? Well, beyond the normal reasons... For not winning an award, like you know, technical inferiority, and that again, when I say inferior, it might just be the way the proposal was written. So it was a technically inferior proposal, right? Or another common basis, the price was too high, right? So beyond those those two big ones, um, contractors often suffer from what I'll call imprecision or inconsistencies in their technical language and the information in their proposal. And how do you propose that contractors correct this? Well, that's the million-dollar question, literally, right? And, you know, for you know, for example, one of the color teams should probably be dedicated to ensuring the government can't use one section of the proposal to contradict another. Um, this is just some, some protest shop talk for you for a second. The, the government has a massive advantage in terms of the standard of proof in a protest. If you say something one way five times, but say it another way, which is arguably non-compliant, the sixth time, the government could give you a weakness or even a deficiency, even though you got it right five out of six times. So one thing I always advise clients is don't let a page count limitation, for example, 
lead you to be vague or ambiguous. I would rather you leave something out that could get you a strength if you just include everything in a consistently worded manner that there is no ambiguity. The government can't find a problem with your proposal, even if they want to. And I would add that one of the most common pitfalls is that small contractors don't shape opportunities at all. They either respond to public solicitations or they perform as subcontractors. The probability of winning a prime contract by not selling to the government ahead of time is infinitesimally small. And while I encourage small businesses to jump on teams, so I don't discourage them from doing subcontracts, but I also encourage them to go for prime contracts as well. Any final thoughts or advice for our audience, Steve? Yeah, I mean, of course, I'm a a lawyer, so I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't scare everyone a little bit. Um, The U.S. government is the only customer who can put you in jail. So when in doubt, reach out to counsel. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I've had to say that so many times in my career when I'm going through the pound of cure for some of my clients and I wish they just reached out to me earlier. Um, and, and another thing to keep in mind is don't take legal advice from your contracting officer. I am sure they mean well, but if they are wrong about the advice they're giving you, guess who's gonna be left holding the bag? Hint, not them. (laughs) You're absolutely right. (laughs) So, Steve, thank you so much for sharing your insights with our audience today. It's been my pleasure, Shirley. Thank you. Folks, if you would like to get in touch with Steve, he can be reached at srameli at mslaw.com. Or you can reach out to us here at Skelta Market, and we'll make sure you're connected. This is Shirley Collier, president of Skelta Market and host of the Growth Masters Federal Podcast, signing off for now. As we close, I want to thank you for joining us today and encourage you to connect with me on LinkedIn and visit our website, that's skeletomarket.com, with the number two in the middle, where you will find our library of podcasts, webcasts, white papers, my blog, and other links and resources. While there, please leave us a comment or suggestion so we can stay focused on what's important to you. We'll see you next time.